through the book of Job, you might think, this is long, at times confusing, and maybe repetitive. We are not going to preach through every verse in this book, and we're not going to read through every verse in chapters 4 to 7 today either. But we will look at a portion of these passages here today and going forward, of course, Lord willing, in the weeks ahead. If you'll turn with me then to the chapter of uh, Job chapter 4, excuse me, on page 4 in your bulletin, you'll see an outline. I'm going to be reading portions of verses in chapters 4 through 7 today. It's a little different than what's on the outline. Hear now God's word. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet you, yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. Oh, that I might have my request, Job speaking, and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Verse 14. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Verse 27. You would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friends. Chapter 7, verses 17 to 21. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spittle? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression? And take away my iniquity. For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. So far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us today by his Holy Spirit. Think of some of the most disappointing people in your life. You say, that's depressing. The person who's continually negative. The news and the media all the time. Maybe a nosy sibling, kids. A demanding boss. An overprotective helicopter parent. Someone who's an expert on every subject. You know, those people. Whatever you say, they've been there, they've done that. They got the t-shirt. And the effect on you can be just deflating. Being around them leaves you disheartened and discouraged and lacking confidence. Now, think of some of the most painful, discouraging times in life. 
Think of how those times are more difficult by the presence of discouraging people. That's a picture of what's going on here in Job. Friends who unjustly criticize. Friends who add to the burden. Job shared his heart. It was a cursed lament in chapter 3, and their response to him is brutally harsh and lacking in love. What we see in chapters 4 to 37 is Job and his friends debating the question of chapter 3. Job says, why am I still alive? This is a wisdom debate. The speeches kind of take on the air of a drama in a courtroom. Job is on trial. Each of the cycles of three speeches has six speeches in them. The leader who begins is Eliphaz. He's the man from Edom who's known for his wisdom, so to speak. He has gray hair. He's older than Job's father. He's the philosopher of the three, the most prominent, eloquent, and the most long-winded. Job will say basically, a windbag, get to the point already. You're going on and on and you're saying nothing that's helpful. Bildad comes next, a traditionalist, as one man says, a bit boring. Zophar is young and arrogant, and yet all three of them have the same message. As you read through Job, and I'd encourage you to do that in these weeks, read through the whole thing, you'll see they're singing from the same song sheet. The record is going over and over. Remember a record? Kids, a record be, I don't know how to explain it. (laughs) Repeat, repeat, repeat. What's the message? How does Job respond? And what does it mean for your life? First, the painful betrayal of friends in Eliphaz's harsh words. Eliphaz begins well. He encourages Job. Job, you've counseled many people. You've encouraged them. They've been weak, and you've come with a word to build them up in hope. But now, Job, the shoe's on the other foot. You can't take your own counsel. A word here to pastors, especially, and counselors, that is very sometimes true. Job, you are so impatient because your confidence in God is gone. You're rattled by the events of your life. You don't fear God like you used to anymore, verse 6. And then Eliphaz, who's speaking on behalf of all of them, you know that in chapter 5, verse 27, we, this is us, Job, we are saying, you are sowing trouble because those who sow trouble also reap trouble. This is the point that he makes. This is the point the friends make. It's a straightforward picture, kids, of a seed that goes in the ground, and if it's a tomato seed, what's it going to produce if there's water and rain and weeding done? Tomatoes. So what you sow, you will reap. Johnny Cash sang about that. The Apostle Paul says it, Galatians 6, verse 7. Job, because you brought them on yourself. Derek Thomas reminds us of a wonderfully amusing cartoon. Lucy, remember Peanuts, kids? Lucy's kind of selfish, isn't she? She says to Charlie Brown, there's one thing that you're going to have to learn, Charlie Brown. You reap what you sow. You get out of life what you put into it. No more and no less. 
In a corner of the cartoon, Snoopy the dog is muttering, I'd kind of like to see a little margin for error. I've observed, says Eliphaz, that when bad things happen, it's because you put bad stuff in. He doesn't assume this yet, but this is where this is going. Job, are you hiding some secret sin in your life? Give me one example, verse 7. Christopher Ash says this really well. One example of an innocent person who died in the prime of life. Give me one example. Do you see that? There is no example, he says. This is an astounding claim. It assumes what it seeks to prove. It's justifiable. If a person dies suddenly in the prime of life, that proves they're a sinner. Their harsh end proves they've done something, and that thing they've done brought it about. He's hinting that that's Job. Job, the lion, is a picture in the Bible of all sorts of wickedness. The Bible wasn't written yet, but we know that from later on, after Job, don't we? Five times he mentions the lion, kids, in verses 10 and 11. But he mentions here a lion that has no teeth. So a lion that has no teeth, what's going to happen? It's going to die because it can't eat. And so he says, Job, the arrogant evildoer, like the lion without teeth, is going to die under the judgment of God. And then verse 12, a shift. Do you notice this in verse four, chapter 4? It's very strange. Christopher Ash brings this out again well. Eliphaz talks about a spooky night vision, a hair-raising nightmare. We're given a message. A spirit comes, glides past his face. The hair of his flesh stands up. He hears a voice. This is crazy, scary stuff. Where does this voice come from? We're not told. Is it a demon spirit from hell? We're not told. We are, however, from the rest of the Bible, very clearly told this is not the, the word that comes from God. He's not a prophet. The vision here in chapter 4 is very different from a prophet. A prophet, like Isaiah 6, like we read today, hears a word not from a spirit. No prophet gets a word from a spirit, but from God. A prophet stands before God, is commissioned to bring God's law and gospel to God's people. Not just some sort of general truth that the person himself wants to say. There's something so contemporary about what Eliphaz says. Have you ever had someone say to you, I've got a word from the Lord for you? Now, if that's Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. He gives you the desires of your heart. Thank you for bringing me a word from the Bible. If it's from the Bible, praise God. But if it's not, this is Eliphaz. Beware of those people. You can't argue with them. God told me. So my private opinion is sanctioned by God speaking to me. And now God told me to tell you. Even worse. So this spirit, whatever it is, is saying to Eliphaz exactly what Eliphaz wants it to say and what Eliphaz wants to tell Job. Basically, there's something lacking in you, Job. There's a problem with you. Job, he goes on in chapter 5, there are two ways to live. The way of a fool and the way of the wise man. The end of chapter 4, do you see what Eliphaz says? Job, you have no 
wisdom. The issue of Job concerns wisdom and where wisdom is to be found. That's what this book is about. Job, you're a fool, you're hot-headed, you're impulsive, you're jealous, your emotions are just bursting out, and you know what happens to fools, Job, chapter 5. Disaster comes to them. And then he personalizes this in a really harsh way. Cruel, in fact. He makes an allusion to a tent collapsing. Chapter 4, verse 21. How did Job's children die? He speaks of children who are crushed in the gate, chapter 5, verse 4. He speaks of the harvest being devoured in verse 5. Trouble doesn't just happen, Job. You've lost your children. You've lost your health. You've lost your job. It's not just random, Job. It's your fault. If I were you, chapter 5, verse 8. Have you ever had friends act like this? In our hearts, have we ever acted like this? Eliphaz becomes the mediator in his mind. If I were you, Job, I would turn to God, I would trust him, and I would repent and try not to be too clever. And ironically, in chapter 5, verses 8 to 11, what he tells Job to do in the end is what Job will do. (laughs) This is irony of ironies. Verse 12, Eliphaz says, There's crafty people in the world, deceitful, but God's going to frustrate their schemes. They're not going to get away with it. And again, ironically, what Eliphaz says will happen to people like Job happens to him. Eliphaz gets caught in his own net of scheming. Job 5.13 is quoted in the New Testament. Do you know that? By Paul. 1 Corinthians 3. Paul, in verse 19, says, The wisdom of this world is folly with God. And then, quoting Job 5.13, he catches the wise craftiness. So Paul quotes from his speech. Incredible. Paul's point is the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. And the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the wisdom of the world would never come up with a plan of a crucified Savior. That's the worst sort of thing the world says. But that's the wisdom of God. And Paul quotes this right here from Eliphaz. Incredible. Then Eliphaz says, Job, you need to submit to God's discipline. Verse 17 of chapter 5. This is what is behind the problem. God Disciplines those he loves. Sounds a lot like the Proverbs. Sounds like Hebrews. God will bind up your wounds, Job. He'll heal your brokenness. Job 5.18 sounds like Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, and Hosea 6. What do we make of this? Several times in the Bible, it talks of God chastening his people because he loves them. The question is, is divine chastisement the explanation of Job's suffering? The answer is no, it's not. Has Job sinned in complaining? 
Yes, he has. That will be dealt with later in the book. Elihu and God both will deal with that. But Eliphaz is dealing with the cause of Job's afflictions, and that is not Job's sin. In pride, Eliphaz judges the fool and curses the fool's house. How do we critique him? Derek Thomas. I want you to hear right from him because this is really perhaps surprising. First, Eliphaz is partly right. His theological analysis has some merit, painful as it is to admit. You do reap what you sow. The harvest, God's verdict and the judgment, will correspond to the sowing. This happens, kids, if you don't brush your teeth. Brush your teeth. Remember that song? If you don't brush your teeth at night, what's going to eventually happen? perhaps, over time, cavities and root canals. If you speed and drive way too fast, out of control, what's going to eventually happen? Tickets and accidents. A woman secretly despises another woman in the church. From time to time, they have disagreements that are petty, but it's a matter of personality. With every contemptuous thought, she is sowing seeds destructive to her spiritual health and to the fellowship of the church. A husband and wife allow resentment to build in their marriage. They don't resolve the difference. They don't forgive. There's no humility. There's no grace. There's no love. They sow seeds of destruction. They drift apart over years, like a drip of a faucet, slowly. They sow seeds of loneliness, bitterness, and unbelief. Every time we allow our minds to harbor grudges, nurse grievances, lust, wallow in self-pity, we sow to the flesh. There's something true here. God's wrath is present in the universe as a consequence of sin as well. It's the reflex of his holiness towards sin. Think of Uzzah touching the ark. He died. That symbolizes God's holiness. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. They died. God punishes wickedness, and sometimes that happens immediately in this life. But Eliphaz is also partly wrong. What Eliphaz misses is that the harvest is at the close of the age, and not until then. The problem is Eliphaz says everything you reap is a consequence of what you have sown. Eliphaz doesn't understand that suffering can come from many different and for many different reasons. He's a legalist. If you're suffering, God's angry with you. If you're blessed outwardly, God's happy with you. He misapplies Proverbs. That's where wisdom comes in. This is a wisdom book. Principles must never be applied without wisdom. He applies a truth without a distinction. He doesn't discern. He has nothing in his mind for the man born blind. Why was he born blind, John 9? Was it his sin? Was it his parents' sin? Jesus says neither. It was that I might heal him and display the glory of God through him. Eliphaz has no room for the suffering of the righteous, other than it is sowing 
to evil, the just desserts. The false health, wealth, prosperity stuff today. See how contemporary this is? Someone says, claim it. If you name it and you claim it, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. If you aren't healthy, wealthy, and wise, if you're suffering or sad because either you haven't repented enough or you don't have enough faith, that's Eliphaz. It's wicked. He's an inept counselor. He misses the mark. Jim Marshall, football fans, Minnesota Vikings, 1964. I like football, I'm sorry. He recovers an offensive fumble. He runs 66 yards where? The wrong way into the 49ers, into his own end zone, so the 49ers get the points. What do they get? He threw the ball up into the stands. He thought he scored a touchdown. That means safety San Francisco. Jim Marshall, it's still one of the 100 greatest plays of all time, according to NFL films. Wrong way. That's what Eliphaz is doing. He's draining three-pointers left and right for the San Antonio Spurs on their side, not for your beloved Timberwolves. He hasn't listened to Job. He doesn't understand Job's situation. He doesn't understand that Job needs compassion. He doesn't need a theological lecture. No sympathy, no love, no tenderness, no grace, only harsh discipline, heavy on God's holiness, smug, cold, callous. That's not really a picture of God's holiness at all. It's a false understanding of it without understanding the gospel of Jesus. He's the Pharisee of the Old Testament, the cage-faced Calvinist who just bursts into the room and says, I've got all the answers. I don't need to go to seminary. I don't need to read those books. I know better. Horrible timing. Everything's black and white. No gray. What's wrong with you, Job? Why don't you see things like I see them? That's Eliphaz. And in spite of his good intentions, he speaks words to Job that Satan would have Job here. Truth misapplied is a part of Satan's stock in trade. Satan twists scripture, he adds to it, he contradicts it, he omits it. That's Eliphaz. At the end of chapter 5, Eliphaz encourages Job to fear God. Why? For the same reason Satan said he would always fear God. For the rewards of piety and godliness, not because he really loves God. Second, Job's cry of lament. With Job's reply, as they say, game on. Here we go. The battle is joined. Job says in chapter 6, yeah, I'm vexed. I'm tired. I'm angry. I'm drained of energy for living. I'm depressed. If you could put all of my pain on a scale over here and all the sand of the world on a scale over here, my pain's greater than all the sand of the world. I'm not being foolish. I'm lamenting, yes, with harsh words. I never should have said, cursed be the day of my birth. No. But you don't understand, Eliphaz. My words are rash because my suffering is great. 
Not my folly, but my misery. And Eliphaz, according to you, I'm supposed to be quiet. Chapter 6, verse 5. I'm supposed to just shut up and take it. Just be quiet and say nothing. Grim, stoic. If a dog is hungry, kids, will they let you know? Yeah, our dog does if he's thirsty. Whoa, we forgot to give him water. It's hot outside. Even an animal will let you know if they're hungry or thirsty. Eliphaz, your words are like a diet of food that is rotten, verse 6. Think of slimy cream cheese. Think of meatloaf that you left in the back of the refrigerator and it's full of mold. That's what your words are like to me, Eliphaz. Disgusting. Suppose I am guilty. Suppose I've sinned. Even then, Eliphaz, the depth of my pain doesn't mean you can talk this way. You've withheld kindness from me. A friend never withholds kindness. You betrayed me. A friend speaks the truth in love. A friend is honest with grace, but a friend doesn't stab in the back. Verses 18 to 20. It's like travelers in the desert. They're hot. They need water. One of them knows there's water up there in the foothills. They go to find the water. When they get there, it's dried up. It's like northern Minnesota, which is on fire. There used to be water there. Not anymore. Job says, Eliphaz, I need a drink of cold water. I'm parched. I'm weary. And you have no water to give me. Verse 27, you're like the nuns in The Sound of Music. Job Marie is not an asset to the abbey. Eliphaz, that's what you're saying. You're saying I'm not an asset. Many a thing you know you ought to tell her. How do you solve a problem like Maria? Eliphaz, that's what you're saying to me. You're saying that I'm a problem like Maria. You're playing this Job game. You're tossing my problems around like dice over coffee and kind of pontificating about the great things of life. I'm a person, Eliphaz. You were my friend. Not anymore. Loved ones, there's a lot of implication here. You can say all the right things, but if you say it to the wrong person, it's worse than saying nothing at all. You say, well, what about someone who's sinned? Yeah, even if they've sinned, if there's no love and compassion and support and solidarity, They're going to take it like you're smacking them down. David Paulison, God's grace in your suffering. Suffering often brings a double pain. There's the problem itself. Sickness, poverty, betrayal, bereavement, which is plenty hard by itself. But then there's another problem. People, even well-meaning, respond poorly to sufferers. Sufferers are misunderstood, meddled with, ignored. So the problem becomes greater because of the isolation that these people lead the sufferer to. 
Job's friends. That's what's going on here. How about in our situation? A young woman is dealing with the death of her husband. Her friends initially support her, but over time they get very tired of her. They're tired of her grief, and they kind of walk away. As Derek Thomas says, in our grief, as we love those who are grieving, check in with them about six months after. Often there's an outpouring of support right away, and then people scatter. They give up on her as a friend. Or, Paulison says, parents of a severely disabled child facing long hardships, they also face how they are treated by others. Family and friends distance themselves or feel awkward. They don't know what to say. Woefully inappropriate help. They don't want to be bothered. Or they offer a thousand suggestions and fixes that reveal utter incomprehension of the realities. Ability is compounded by isolation. Or this, people who love you often focus on the problem, the hardship. They ask about the problem. They pray God help fix the problem. They give plenty of advice for the problem. What are they missing? They're missing you. The, fir- the person facing the problem. Many problems and hardships have no remedy until the day when all tears are wiped away. The loved one is The marriage is over. The money's gone. There may be partial help, Paulison says, but no fix. How are you doing? Where do you encouragement? Will suffering define you? Will faith and love grow, or will you shrivel up? Those are kind of questions that Paulison asks us to think about, to think about the person more than the problem. That's where wise friends come in. Because friendship is not, what do I need to do? It's, who, by grace, do I need to be to this person? Side by side. Encouraging. Why do friends go wrong? Psalm 41. Some of them end, as Jesus quoted when Judas betrayed him, because of the betrayal of a friend stabbing in the back. But the, the reasons for friendship's ending that you have are probably many. Sometimes it's a friend moves away. There's a grief there. There's an affliction, a, sorrow, a suffering there when you miss this person. Sometimes, over time, friends drift apart because interests change. Sometimes one becomes a Christian, the other's not, and they love that person who's not a Christian, but things are different. Sometimes there's a breach in trust. Sometimes there's gossip. Sometimes there's not forgiving, where someone just holds on to it, a grudge, a grievance. They don't let go. Sometimes friendships end because people don't mind their own business. Proverbs twenty six seventeen. Whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Kids, if you see a big German shepherd who's barking at you coming down the road, you don't go up and grab its ears, do you? No. So also, don't stick your nose in someone's business. 
Minding your own business is a really key proverb for being a good friend. Proverbs eleven twelve: Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a understanding remains silent. A wise person knows it's not enough to be right. Think about this in our marriage, friendships. Even if we're right, God wants us to humble ourselves with restraint. Don't answer every insult. Don't come back with something at someone who came at something with you. Silence can preserve a friendship. Silence can preserve a marriage, a church. Don't wear out your welcome. You've got to know when to hold to fold them. Guests, like fish, stink after three days. That's not in the Proverbs, but it should be. Meaning, friends need time together and friends need time not together. Don't overwhelm. Don't suffocate. There's a lot of ways friendships end. But there's also the painful reality of loneliness, of not having a friend. Sometimes because people are too busy. Sometimes because they think they've been too burned. One study found recently among teenagers that as smartphones became more popular around 2012, teens' feelings of loneliness rise along with that. Mental health suffers. You say, well, I'm just going to keep my kid from having a phone. We're not talking about that. But even if they don't have a phone, Paige, who's 14, wants to hang out with her friends, but they say no because they're on their phones. They're living through the social media experiments, which appears surface to some, oh, I got all these friends, but it's actually compounding loneliness, isolation. Social media making everyone's life look so glamorous. The idea that you can connect with people, but you really don't. It's, it's unfulfilling. And into this emptiness, in this loneliness, we can share the gospel. We tell of a God who has compassion. We tell of a God who loves sinners, who loves to lavish grace on sinners. Like the man at the church in Texas who a pastor says recently joined their church. He was raised in Iran, converted to Christ from Islam. He was asked, what was it about Christianity that drew him? He said, it was, it was compassionate towards people, a concept unknown in Islam. We can be a living example. Look beyond our strange behaviors. All of us have strangeness. All of us have idiosyncrasies. As we show compassion to each other, God has created a community called the church that gives life and healing to lonely souls. Job is betrayed by friends. He's betrayed by God. He says, I have nowhere else to turn, chapter 7. My life is full of emptiness. My skin is dirty. Ulcers and maggots are growing on me. I can't sleep at night. I have no energy during the day. The prime of my life is going by. 
which, as Christopher Ashe says, is one of the paradoxes of suffering. Both a slow pain and a fast running away of life itself. God's eyes are on me, Job says. God is like Big Brother in Orwell, 1984. His cameras are everywhere. Secret police. The pressure's unbearable. I can't sleep at night. I've got nightmares. I would rather be strangled to death, he says, chapter 7, verse 15. I've lost my dignity. God has betrayed me. He says, leave me alone, God. If God is against me, who can be for me? He inverts Romans 8. Why are you keeping me alive, God? Just finish the job. And then he does a satanically inspired flip around of Psalm 8 in verses 17 to 18 of chapter 7. Psalm 8 talks of man made in the image of God with dignity and responsibility. Job says, God, you haven't set your mind on me in a way that is honoring to me. I'm being assaulted, I'm a target. You're using me for target practice with poisoned arrows. You're hunting me. Why are you continuing to come to me? Just leave me alone. Enough already. I'm so insignificant. Why don't you go bother someone else? That's what he's saying. And Satan is behind this because God is not trying to destroy Job. Satan is. How long, he says, verse 19, How long will this suffering continue? Chapter 6, verse 9, God, just crush me. I'm done. I have no strength. And he finishes his speech in verse 21 like a child who is mad at mom and dad. I'm leaving. I'm moving away. You don't love me, mom and dad. I'm going to pack my bags and I'm going somewhere else. And the child might actually walk outside with their bags. Job is saying, you're going to miss me when I'm gone. But as Derek Thomas says, he knows deep down God still loves him. Kids, you know mom and dad still love you. Maybe you've said those things. Maybe you've thought that mom and dad still love you. Mom and dad will come to you with arms and welcome you. And so does God with Job. God will never stop pursuing Job. He'll never stop pursuing you. God loves you, brothers and sisters at Emmaus Road. Job was looking at God in light of his suffering and saying, God says to you today, Don't look at me in light of your suffering. God says to you, look at your suffering in light of the cross of Jesus. Where is wisdom? Whose wisdom do I trust when I suffer? Job's search for wisdom is found in Jesus. The only righteous man who ever lived, the one who suffered more than any of us will suffer, the one who bore the wrath and judgment of God, sin in our place. The cross is the wisdom of God. 
It's foolishness to the world. But it's God's purpose to save his people. So that when I suffer, I'm comforted by trusting in a suffering Savior who was crushed in our place. When Job says, God crush me, he uses the word that is found in Isaiah 53 when it says the suffering servant is crushed for us. It is only through the suffering of Jesus that God brings comfort to sufferers like us, even when we are betrayed by friends. Who is the ideal friend? God is our friend through Christ. It is who God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Eternal, powerful interactions of love. The heart of God is friendship reaching out. God made you in his image. You and I need friendship. Whoever isolates himself destroys himself. Friendship began in heaven. It comes down to earth in the gospel where it says that Jesus loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Jesus was betrayed and mocked, belittled and tortured. His friends argued about who was greatest. Then they fell asleep. Then they panicked. Then they denied. Jesus talked to the strangest of people. Zacchaeus, Matthew the tax collector, the woman at the well. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is more than a friend to you, but he's not less. He's trustworthy. He never lets you down. He never betrays you. He sympathizes. He comforts. He delivers you from your greatest problem, sin and the justice and the wrath of God. He speaks the truth in love. He handles you carefully. His blood was shed for your sins. He loves you. He clings to you. He calls you his friend by grace. And by his grace, he helps you to be wise friends to one another. We disappoint our friends. We offend when we don't mean to, and we offend sometimes when we mean to. There are unmet expectations. There are unreasonable, unbiblical expectations. But by the Spirit, in Christ, I can be a friend who doesn't betray, who doesn't use people, who, by the power of the gospel, can be a friend to the friendless. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we read in your word, this is my commandment that you love. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Father, create among us as disciples at Emmaus Road, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that encourage one another. We need your spirit. We need your help. We are weak. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.